We've been looking at the subject of how do we keep the faith alive and pass it on to the next generation. That is, the faith must be kept alive in our life, in our lives, if we are to pass it on. In my reading this week, I came across a verse I thought was applicable, Psalm 71:18. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. We've been considering what it is that we should do in order to keep the faith alive, to pass it on. We've been looking at First Timothy. Last Sunday, we saw two more principles from the first part of chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. The first 20 verses was it's a difficult passage, a puzzling passage. We saw two things. First of all, we are to recognize each other as family and treat one another accordingly. If you look at the first two verses in 1 Timothy 5, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger uh, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It's no stretch. I think we get this, that in fact we are the children of God, we are the family of God, the household of God. So that we are related, that I think we get. However, as I mentioned last week, I think there are two things that sort of mess us up when it comes to how we're to treat each other. The first is that Paul tells us elsewhere that in the gospel there are no ethnic differences, there are no class differences, there are no gender differences. And so if we're not careful, I think we will go in a different direction than what Paul intends. And living when and where we do, uh, radical egalitarianism, which fits in with what we think Paul is saying, we might take it to mean that we are to treat everyone, every Christian, exactly the same. And in some sense, I would agree. I would not disagree. We are to treat one another with respect. But as Paul points out, those who are older are to be treated as our parents, and those who are our age or younger as siblings. So Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells him that, in fact, he can correct He can rebuke an older man, but not harshly. Instead, Timothy is to encourage him as if this man were his father. You can say, brother, you are wrong, but understand that he is older than you and you need to treat him accordingly. One may safely assume that the same is true of women, older women, Those who are younger are to be treated as brothers and sisters. And then at the end, we have that phrase, with absolute purity. We are to treat one another with respect and with purity. Then the second principle we saw last week is that we are to care for, we are to take care of those who are in need, but we are not to do so blindly. This is taken from an extended passage on widows, which begins in verse number three, and then a section on elders. It is a difficult passage, but we noticed last week that Paul does the same thing in both passages. First of all, he points out that they are to be taken care of. And then secondly, he makes it clear that some of them are the cause of problems in the church and need to be dealt with. So he spells out the qualifications and the difficulties. One thing that helps us, I think, as we've seen, is we need to understand that this letter is primarily corrective. 
Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. There are problems there. Now he is writing a letter. And the letter is not to give instructions. Those are in there. But it is to correct the problem. And therefore, rather than seeing it as a, a letter that this is how things are to be done, Paul is in fact saying this is how things are not to be done. These are the corrections that need to be made. The church in Ephesus has two groups that are causing problems. The first are elders because you have house churches throughout Ephesus. You don't have a big mega church. You have individual house churches and elders in each of those. And some of those have gone off the, you know, they've gone off into the ditch, so to speak, and are teaching false doctrine. The second group of people who are causing problems are widows, the younger widows. And it seems that they are the ones who have been most influenced by these false teachers. So in Second Timothy, which the Lord willingly will look at after First Timothy, he writes, they are the kind who worm their way into the homes, into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. So Paul is writing to say, Timothy, these elders are causing problems and they are in fact leading young widows astray. So does that mean get rid of all elders? Don't take care of an elder? No. And elders to be taken care of. Does this mean we shouldn't do anything for widows? No, widows are to be taken care of. But in both cases, there are certain qualifications that need to be met. And I think what Paul is writing here should not necessarily be applied literally. That is to say, if we are to help a widow in our midst, we would not require her to wash our feet. Because that's one of the things that's in the list there. We live in a different culture. We wear shoes for the most part. We don't wear sandals. Washing feet is not a social or cultural thing with us, whereas it was back then. But in fact, when we look at someone we are going to help, we need to see something in their life. There need to be qualifications. And Paul writes, she should be well known for her good deeds, including bringing up children, showing hospitality and helping those in trouble. Today we continue in chapter 5. We'll finish up chapter 5 and then move into chapter 6. And here, uh, I was sort of debating with myself to make it one principle and divide into two, but I've actually made it two different principles um, with qualifications. So, listen or follow along as I read uh, 1 Timothy 5, beginning at verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious and even those that are not cannot be hidden. On the face of it, it seems that this is almost a staccato passage in which Paul is dealing with a bunch of things and it's almost as though he's tying up loose ends. So if you look at the instructions, keep them without partiality, do nothing out of favoritism, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, do not share in the sins of others, keep yourself pure, stop drinking only water, and use a little wine. And then he has certain observations at the end that some men's sins are obvious, others are not. Some good deeds are obvious and others are not, but they will, in fact, they cannot be hidden. So what is Paul trying to get at? I mean, what is this? How, 
what ties this all together? I would suggest to you that each aspect or each item here is an important aspect of his letter to Timothy, those in Ephesus who are reading the letter. But there is, for our purposes, a single principle that ties these five verses together. It is this. We are to do the right thing, but we need to know how we do something is important. Paul has just given Timothy instructions with regard to widows and elders. Now he charges him solemnly in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Keep these instructions without partiality. Do nothing out of favoritism. I would argue that these instructions might be difficult to carry out because of Timothy's connection to those involved. In some cases, he might gladly, you know, say, listen, Jack, there's something wrong with you. You're teaching false doctrine. We need to get rid of you because perhaps there is not a close relationship or there is a certain animosity. On the other hand, he might have a very close relationship with someone who is teaching false doctrine and Like us, he might be tempted to make excuses for that person. Paul tells Timothy that he is to do what is right. But he is to do it correctly. That is, without partiality and without favoritism. I don't know about you, but it's always easier for me to correct someone that I don't like. And it's always more difficult to correct someone I do like. And yet there's something ironic about that because someone I do like, if they need correcting, I want to help them, you know, I want to help them straighten out or fix whatever's going on. Whereas someone I don't care about, if they're doing something wrong, they're like, well, I don't care about you anyway. Why would I bring it up to you? It is human nature, I think, to be partial and to show favoritism. The story is told in First Samuel of the high priest Eli, who had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were wicked men, yet they served at the tabernacle. And while Eli did rebuke them, he said, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But he did not stop their behavior. He did not remove them from the priestly office. So here's the high priest and his sons. And I don't know if you're familiar with the passage, but these were wicked men. I mean, first of all, God had given very specific instructions about how the priests were to be fed from the sacrifices. They were completely going contrary to that. And secondly, they were having sexual relations with the women who served at the tabernacle, out in front of the tabernacle. And yet their dad did nothing about it. I mean, he said, you know, come on, guys, you, you know, you've got a bad reputation and God's not going to be happy. But he didn't put them out of office, which I think he should have done. But then I was struck by the story that comes after that of Samuel. Remember, Samuel was the child. Uh, his mother, Hannah, made a vow. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And then Samuel lived in the tabernacle and helped serve there. Um, one night, Samuel was in bed and he heard somebody calling him. So he got up and ran to Eli and he said, what do you want? Why did you call me? He said, I didn't call you. So he went back to bed. Again, he heard someone calling his his name. So he ran to Eli and Eli said, no, I didn't call you. 
The third time it happened, Eli said to him, oh, I think I know, he didn't tell him this, but he realized it's the Lord who is calling Samuel. And so he told him, um, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so that's what happened. The Lord said, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then he told him what he was going to do to the house of Eli for the wickedness of his sons, his failure to correct them. This is part of what the Lord said. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. He had shown favoritism, partiality. He had not corrected them. The next morning, Eli confronted Samuel and asked what the Lord had said to him. And Samuel didn't really want to say. He said, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide me, uh, hide from me anything he told you. It's like, excuse me? May God deal ever so severely, so severely with this child if he doesn't tell you something? In the meantime, your sons have been reprobates in the house of God in the tabernacle. It is human nature to be harder with others, people we don't like, and make excuses for people we do like. We are to do the right thing and we are to do it without partiality and without favoritism. Paul continues here in 1 Timothy 5, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And I'll go out on a limb here. I think Paul is instructing Timothy not to be hasty in doing the right thing. If you think about it, if you have... False teach elders who are teaching false doctrine, they need to be put out. They need to be replaced. And if you don't like these guys, then you're like, yeah, you need to go. And then there are certain men that you do like, yes, we'll make these men elders. And Paul's like, Timothy, you need to do the right thing, but don't be hasty in doing it. The men must be replaced. There's no question. They must be replaced with people who are qualified, as we saw in chapter 3. Timothy, don't give in to the temptation to do things hastily or quickly. If he does, I think this is what Paul means by saying he will share in the sins of others. He must make sure that he does things correctly and not in haste. He must keep himself pure. This leads to the next aspect of how we are to do things or that how we do things is important. He says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What does Paul mean and why does he bring it up here? It seems to not fit into the context whatsoever. I would suggest that one might take this if not Timothy, then certainly the others who are reading the letter, that this means if he's going to keep himself pure, that Timothy should drink no wine whatsoever. Remember that some of the false teachers had been telling people to abstain from certain foods. It may also be that they were telling them not to drink wine. We do know, by the way, in Jeremiah 35, that within Israel, this is Old Testament Israel, there was a sect called the Rechabites. And the Rechabites did not drink wine at all. 
it may very well be that somehow this had come into the church in Ephesus. And so when Paul says to Timothy, keep yourself pure, people are like, okay, Timothy, just want you to know what that means. It means you can't have any wine. That's not what Paul is saying at all. We need to be careful that in doing what is right, we do not go beyond what is written. In our enthusiasm, we may be tempted to do more than we are instructed. In the process, we redefine what is intended. So in keeping oneself pure, um, here I think some took it to mean that he should abstain from wine. I think in our culture, we might think of abstinence from other things and imagine that we are doing the right thing. When in fact, I think we have gone beyond what is written. Lastly, in this section, we have a series of observations which point out to one last aspect of how we do things is important. We should not come to conclusions based on mere observation. See, there are false teachers. (coughs) And for some of them, what they are doing is wrong. That is obvious. And it may be that some of them have already fallen under judgment. For other men, what they are doing that is wrong may not be so obvious and nothing bad has happened to them. Um, Timothy needs to make sure that he does not go merely by what he observes. In the same way that good deeds sometimes are not obvious. Sometimes they are. How we do what is right should not be controlled or governed or influenced by what we can see, by what we can observe, or what we may conclude as we observe somebody's life. Because we cannot, we do not see the whole picture. We do not. So, we are to do the right thing, but we need to know that how we do something is important. It is not simply enough to say, I'm doing the right thing. I'm sure you all have stories or remember individuals who did the right things in very obnoxious ways. It's like, I know you're doing the right thing, but you're not doing it in the right way. How we do things is important. So we must not show partiality when we are doing the right thing. We are not to be hasty in doing the right thing. We are not to go beyond what is written in doing the right thing. And we should not come to conclusions based merely on observation. Now we turn to chapter 6. If you would uh, listen and follow along as I read the first ten verses here in First Timothy. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In this section, Paul touches on at least three subjects. What slaves are to do, how they are to behave, how false teachers, in fact, behave, and then the issue of wealth. And one might wonder what any of these have to do with the other. The last two, I think, we might see as being connected because the false teachers are in it for the money, and then Paul then begins to talk about the love of money. Um, But I would suggest that the three are, in fact, tied together. The principle I see is this. We are to do the right thing, but know that why you do something is important. In the previous section, how you do something is important. Here, Paul deals with motivation, the motives. Why we do something is important. Briefly, just a digression on the matter of slavery, because I think we may struggle with what Paul says here to slaves, because we see slavery in an entirely different light than what it was in the first century. I spoke on this when we went through Philemon and then we talked about the issue of evil. The definition I used was the total control of one person by another for the purpose of economic exploitation. When we hear of slaves, when we hear of slavery, we have a very definite picture that comes into mind. One that involves violence and one that involves race. Africans were kidnapped and brought to this country and their descendants after them. Many of them were brutalized and forced to work hard doing manual labor. So for us, it involves violence, the kidnapping, the selling of human beings, the selling of their children, the violence used against them to keep them under control, and race, because almost without exception, in our culture, in our history, those who were slaves were Africans. They were of African descent. So with this picture in mind, when we read something like these first two verses of chapter 6, it should make us a bit uncomfortable. But what was slavery like when Paul was writing this? In the days of the Republic, which was about 100 years, a century before Paul, Roman legislation uh, ruled that slaves had no rights. They were completely under the control of their masters. And They could do with them as they pleased, but they could also, in fact, set them free. That is, because uh, all, all the authority rested with the owner, the slave was seen as his property with whom or with what, with whom he could do whatever he wanted. The power of punishment belonged to the master, and this included whipping, confinement, and execution. And we have accounts of horrendous things that were done to slaves. This is often what people think of when they read Paul writing this. But this was not the case in the first century A.D. In Paul's day, things were quite different, at least for many slaves. By the way, slavery was per se pervasive in the Roman Empire. It has been estimated that in Italy, 85 to 90 percent of the population were slaves. Okay. Nine out of ten people were slaves. They were the workforce of the empire. They did manual labor. They were domestic helpers. 
They were educators. They were administrators. They were doctors. That is to say, a person would be sold to someone or he or she would sell themselves to someone for a period of time to say, I will train your son. I will teach him or I will be the doctor for your household. A slave could be acquired by inheritance, by purchase, in settlement of a debt, and as a captive of war. We see in the Old Testament that Hebrews could in fact sell sell themselves into slavery, but they were to be released at a certain point. Manumission refers to that being set free, because in Latin, submano, under the hand of, you're a slave, but then manumission, you are set free from the hand of the master, and you can do it as what you wanted. In Roman law, persons who were slaves could accept, expect to be set free at the age of 30. 30 was the age of manumission. During the time of Paul, slavery, I think, was far different than what we imagined. That masters were more restrained, that they came to realize the financial stake they had in their slaves. And more than that, Seneca, a Stoic, and others began to speak of the fact that masters should be kind to their slaves. And yet there's still that problem of our definition, the total control of one person by another for the purpose of economic exploitation. And you will notice, by the way, that um, Paul uses the word yoke. And I don't know about you, but when I think of yoke, I think of an animal, a harness that you put on the animal so that it can pull a load. And yet Paul gives these instructions that a slave should consider his master worthy of full respect is to show no less respect for them because they are brothers. They are to serve them even better. Why does Paul give such instructions? For all our understanding of the historical context, it still seems wrong for one person to own another person. And then for someone like Paul to come along and say to the second person, you are to work hard for this person that owns you. Why does Paul do this? Well, he says, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Why we do what is right is important, just as how we do something that is right is important. Paul then turns to the matter of false teachers. And it becomes clear, at least in my opinion, the why is what Paul is dealing with. They are teaching false doctrine, not agreeing with sound instruction. Why? Well, Paul gives us several reasons. He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels. His life is marked by strife, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction. The last one, he thinks that godliness is a means to financial gain. I think all of these can be boiled down to a single thing. It is self-centeredness that is fueled by pride. It's all about them, what they can get out of it. This is the why of what false teachers do what they do. That is not to be the reason why we do what is right. We are not to act out of self-centeredness or pride. And I would argue we are not to do what is right for what we can get out of it. That if we do what is right, we will get something out of it. And so um, 
Let's do what's right and then God will bless us. We will get what we want. I don't know if you've heard sermons like that. I certainly have. And I think Paul is saying, why you do something is very important. And that's not the correct why. That's not the correct reason. The last segment touches on wealth, but it is connected to what comes previously. Godliness is a means to financial gain. That's how they think. But verse number six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. In many ways, contentment is the key word in this segment. What does Paul mean by it? We might think we know, but I think the issue is made more difficult as we look at what the word that Paul uses in this section. Paul actually uses a word that is used by the Stoics. And when we went through Philippians, we saw this. Seneca, who was the great Stoic of the first century, was the tutor of Nero. And Paul was a prisoner of Nero in Caesar's palace. It's very possible that Paul and Seneca met. And if they did, I have no doubt that they had very deep discussions. One of the key words for Stoic philosophy was the word content or contentment. Altarkeia is what it is in Greek. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. If we're not careful, this seems, well, I get this. I know what Paul is saying. And I wonder if, in fact, we do. Because I think we might end up thinking that Paul is being stoic and encouraging us to be, to be fatalistic, that just sort of hang on. It's going to get a little bumpy, but just hang on and just be content with whatever happens. The core belief of Stoicism was tied to a determination and human freedom. The belief that virtue is to maintain a will that is in accord with nature. So in the life of the individual, virtue was seen as the sole good. Things like health, happiness, possessions, that's not important. Okay, For Stoics, that was not important. What you have to do is be content. That within yourself, you had to just sort of hold on and make sure that you weren't thrown by these things. That whether you had money or if you didn't, if you had good health or if you didn't, it didn't matter. You simply had to have an even keel if you wish. You just had to stay in a, in a quiet place. You just had to hang in there and everything would be okay. By mastering your passions, don't get too upset, don't get too happy. Okay. By mastering your passions, you could find equilibrium. Altarkeia what in our translations is contentment. But Paul speaks of being content in a very different way. You see, for Stoics, being content came from within. That they learned just to sort of control their emotions. In popular culture, Spock would be the Stoic. Not emotional. Don't show emotion. Don't be, don't just... Be pure logic, if you wish. For Paul, this is not where contentment comes from. Contentment is not something from within. Contentment comes from outside of you, from without of us, outside of us. It comes 
from being in Christ. Because we are completely dependent upon him. So Paul writes, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content. And then the rest Paul explains, this is in Philippians 4, he describes the circumstances that cover that spectrum. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty, living in plenty or in want, Paul is saying, I have learned to be content. Not because of himself, but because he is in Christ. He is a man in Christ. He is not self-centered. He is Christ-centered. As such, he takes whatever Jesus Christ brings into his life. If it means plenty, he is a man of Christ. If it means a want or need, he is still a man in Christ. In fact, doesn't this sound like what Paul writes in our passage? Look, if you would, at verses 7, 8, and 9. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Um, This is what Paul is saying. It would seem that the false teachers were all about wealth, how to get it. They believed that godliness, following the gospel, if you wish, was a way to become wealthy. This is, in fact, to fall into a trap. Now, verse number nine. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We are to do what is right as God's people. And why we do what is right is important. Here, Paul says, so that the name of God would not be slandered. We are not to be driven by self-centeredness or pride, what we can get out of it. We are to be content, not seeking riches. If you think about it, the two principles that we see here seem simple enough. I mean, we know where to do the right thing. I I think most religious faiths would say, yes, that's right. You're supposed to do the right thing. But here we see two important qualifications or qualifiers, if you wish. How we do something is important. We're not to show partiality or favoritism. We're not to be hasty in doing the right thing. We're not to go beyond what is written. And we should not come to conclusions based on mere observation. I don't know if you've been guilty of this or you've seen others who have been, who in fact have insisted that they are doing the right thing and in fact may have been doing the right thing. But either showed partiality, favoritism, or they were very hasty. Very hasty in doing the right thing. And in some ways and their desire to make sure people did the right thing went beyond what we find in Scripture or simply made a judgment based on observation. Do the right thing. Absolutely. We all agree. But how we do it is very important. And why we do what is right is important as well. 
I would suggest to you that there are many people who do what is right for the wrong reasons. And of the three things we see here, that we are to make sure that the gospel is not slandered, we are to be content, we're not to see what we can get out of it, I think it is this third thing that we struggle with the most. That somehow the gospel has become a means to me achieving what it is I want. Maybe wealth, maybe happiness, maybe fame. I mean, whatever it is that people want, somehow the gospel, being a Christian and doing the right thing, becomes a way for us, we imagine, to get what we want out of life. That's not why we do the right thing. That is not why we are to do the right thing. It is not enough that we do what is right. That we must absolutely do. But how we do it and why we do it are critically important. The how of it, I think, might be more difficult than the why. At least for me. I'll put it this way. If I want to know how I should do something, I'm given, I think, a number of options. And one is trust in my own instinct. Or perhaps trust in my own experience, what I've done in the past. Or I can, by the grace of God, look to his spirit for wisdom. Because what is hasty? What is hasty? What is too quickly? How, How do I know when is the right thing to do something? Well, either I look to myself or I look to God by his spirit to say, give me wisdom as to when I should do something. I mean, how many days are in a hasty? I mean, seriously, how, how do we define hasty? I think it's different in every situation, and we are to look to God to say, God, by your grace, I want to do the right thing. Give me wisdom as to how I should do this. Sometimes I think we are to be gracious and forgiving. We're always to be gracious and forgiving, but sometimes we're like, okay, no more. Okay, This has to stop. It's not a matter of making excuse, but sometimes people need to learn on their own. With children, as children learn to walk and then wander away, you can either sort of keep them tied to you, or sometimes they need to learn to go and then they get lost. You know where they are, but then all of a sudden they realize, oh, mom and dad are right. I need to sort of stick close to them. Um, If you always have them close to you, they may not learn that. So sometimes we immediately step in and other times maybe we need to back off. We need to look to God for his wisdom in this. So I say, for me, I struggle in the area of how to do what is, what is right. I think I know what is right, but how to do it, I think, is where I stumble and struggle. But then I wonder how many people struggle with the issue of why we do something. Do we do it because we want to get something out of it? Um, or we, do we do it to be content, to do what God has told us to do? For some of you, you may remember we had a gentleman some years ago who uh, was really struggling financially. And during the time for prayer, he mentioned, he said, you know, I've started tithing, but I still am not 
no money's coming in. And I just had to say very gently, that's not why we tithe. Okay? Um, we do what is right. It is what is, is commanded. We do not want the name of God to be slandered. We don't want this to be about us or us being proud. By God's grace, we want to be content. Let's pray together. Father, for some, it may seem a major victory simply to do what is right. And in an age whose motto seems to be, you're not the boss of me, for people to submit to your word, to your commands, may seem like something major has happened. And it has. But help us to see that in doing what is right, how we do it is critically important. And why we do what is right is equally important. May we look to you and not to ourselves. May we look for your wisdom and your guidance. And may it not be about us, but about you. You who loved us, who sent your Son, who has redeemed us, is redeeming us, and one day will take us to heaven. This is not what we're getting out of it. There's so much that we are. But it is that you might be praised. You, the eternal creator, our heavenly father, help us to see that. Again, we should do the right thing. Help us to see that. But the how and why of it is important as well. May your spirit bring these things home to our hearts in the days to come. As we think on them. I thank you for this day, this Palm Sunday, that you've brought us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name.